Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Welcome to episode number four of Demolition Digest, your weekly roundup of the hottest and most listened to audio content from right here on Demolition News Radio. In this episode, business briefing for September 2017. London faces tighter emissions controls. Groupthink and the demolition litmus test. But we start with the utterly unsurprising news that the preparatory works on the HS2 high-speed rail line was halted last week, temporarily at least, by environmental protesters. Like we didn't all see that coming. A long-awaited and much-needed project that has potential to take cars off the road and decrease the country's environmental impact has, apparently, upset a handful of tree-huggers, including a 62-year-old woman who is surely old enough to know better all of whom quickly seized the opportunity to be on the telly by sleeping under a digger for a night. I don't know if you saw the, this on the news or in the newspapers, but even if you didn't, I'm sure you can picture it. Environmentalists, particularly male environmentalists, have a certain look about them. They have the pr- predictable beard and the unkempt hair, the charity shop designer scruff clothing. In fact, almost to a man, environmentalists trying to save the planet always look like precisely the sort of people I least wish to share the planet with. Protests of this nature require planning. They require warm clothing, something to drink and food. Is it really too much too much to ask that this planning also includes soap? As is so often the case these days, those involved in the protests are too finely focused and are not seeing the bigger picture. I don't want to grab up 300 miles of the British countryside to put in place a new railway line either. But I also recognise that the motorways linking London and Birmingham often resemble a car park. I recognise that the trains currently serving that route are overcrowded. And despite my personal reservations about the impact on the environment, the wildlife and those that live along the proposed HS2 route, I also recognise that this is not just about making the journey from the nation's first city to its second faster. This is about addressing the present and rapidly growing shortfall in capacity. The country needs this. Much as the country needs landfill sites, incinerators, materials recycling facilities, the removal of old disused or outmoded buildings to make way for new buildings, and much needed new homes and a host of other things that would have the weird beards reaching for their anoraks and camping stoves. Sadly, regardless of whether they represent a national environmental group or just a local cause, protesters fail to see the bigger picture. They're focused on their problems and concerns rather than the problems and issues facing the country as a whole. The protests that took place in Hillingdon earlier this week will not be the last. As the HS2 works progress through the countryside, various demolition and construction companies involved in the project can expect to find protesters chained to machines and lying across site entrances from now pretty much until the project is complete. Same as it ever was. The problem now, of course, is that the great unwashed also have access to social media which they will use to make their protest appear considerably larger than it actually is. In addition, we have a news media that now believes that a tweet or a celebrity fart constitutes news. And so we can expect to see these muesli knitters and more of their kind plastered across our TV screens and newspaper pages for some time to come. The naming of the project really hasn't helped. 
The primary reason for HS2 is not to allow suited and booted executives to get to Birmingham from their Desres in London in half an hour quicker. Nor is it designed to allow folks to work in London and get home to Birmingham in time for Hollyoaks. It's about capacity. Our trains are already overcrowded, and research suggests that by 2020 there will be more than 120 passengers for every 100 places on the trains linking London and Birmingham. Not that this will make any difference to the protesters. So long as their straggly beards and unwashed hair get their 15 minutes of fame, the needs of the country and its economy can go whistle. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor. CanTrack Global provides the only tracking device capable of working on demolition equipment and attachments out of the box. Its super rugged design is fully waterproof and provides both the equipment location and the ability to recover in the event of a theft. Attachment recoveries were up 220% in 2016. See CanTrackGlobal.com or Google the CanTrack asset to find out more. Speaking of HS2, the award of almost £7 billion worth of work in HS2 related contracts during August now seems like a distant memory. As our latest business briefing in conjunction with market intelligence provider the Builders Conference proves, September produced a rather different set of figures. If you were listening this time last month, you would know that the UK construction industry had just enjoyed a record month in terms of new contract awards. Our business briefing, produced in conjunction with market intelligence provider the Builders Conference and the BC Live League table, the UK's only real-time indicator of construction contract activity, reported that the sector had secured more than £11 billion worth of new work during August. So did the industry manage to maintain that upward momentum? Should you be bracing yourself for a work windfall? Should you be employing new staff and shopping for Ferraris? Find out next. Anyone hoping that the unprecedented high achieved by the BC Live League table in August would be maintained, or that it might prompt a boost of industry confidence, was either naive or out of touch with the realities of the current state of the UK construction nation. Almost £7 billion in contract awards against a single mammoth project and the £11 billion monthly total it created was a freak, an economic glitch, an anomaly. And in true construction fashion, the BC Live League table for September bit back hard, the overall total plummeting to just over £3 billion and returning the industry to the downward trajectory it's endured in the latter part of the year. Housing-related projects contributed more than a third of the League's table's monthly tally with £1.36 billion. Schools, colleges and universities added a further £561 million. Geographically, Greater London was, as ever, top of the pile. But once again the region failed to top the £1 billion mark it had been achieving until recently. Furthermore, with the notable exception of July 2017, the number of contract awards gathered during September was the lowest for more than 20 months. If that were not evidence of enough, enough of a continued slowing in demand, then the quarterly roundup of figures most certainly are. The number of projects recorded during the third quarter to the end of September was down 25% on the previous quarter. Take out the freakishly large HS2 related work last month and the value of those projects was down by 20% against the previous quarter as well. August 2017 was an incredible high. But like all highs, a low is bound to follow and the coming down in September feels less like a return to 
what has become a new norm and more like plummeting off the edge of a cliff. Despite the marked downturn in new contract awards recording in September 2017, Greater London continues to lead the way, at least for now. But, as we documented earlier this week, Mayor of London Sadiq Khan could potentially throw a large spanner into London's construction and demolition works if his plans to crack down on environmental emissions are given a go-ahead. I have an issue with political correctness. Aside from the fact that I genuinely don't care about a person's race, creed, colour, gender or sexual orientation, my biggest issue with political correctness is that it attempts to curb free speech. TV and news media are stymied and are forced to use expressions like the F word or the N word as if they think their audience is five years old. Comedians dare not say anything that might be construed as offensive, incurring the wrath of the professionally outraged. We had the preposterous spectacle of the police in Rotherham avoiding the investigation of large-scale grooming, trafficking and abuse of young girls by Pakistani men, lest they upset the local community. And anyone that questions any initiative designed to help safeguard the environment is immediately labelled as a climate change denier. Now personally, I do my bit for the environment. Like all good citizens, I recycle. I actively limit my car mileage. And I've long since swapped my coal-fired typewriter for a more modern and greener machine that is fuelled by food waste and cow farts. But there has to be a point where the desire to be seen to be green must give way to good sense and a look at the bigger picture. And personally, I think the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, may have overstepped that mark. And in his latest push for column inches and TV expo exposure, he has taken aim at the construction and, by association, the demolition industry. Mr Khan has asked central government to give him new powers to curb pollution from construction machinery within the nation's capital. He wants greater powers to enforce compliance of the non-road mobile machinery low emission zone, a scheme that uses planning powers to impose minimum emission standards for machinery used on construction and demolition sites. Although London already has tough rules designed to ensure only modern low emission machines are used, the Mayor does not believe the scheme is being enforced properly by local authorities. Since September 2015, Non-road mobile machinery with engines of net power from 37 to 560 kilowatts used on any major development within Greater London is required to meet Stage 3A emissions regulations as a minimum or to retrofit the best available technology. Machines within the Central Activity Zone or Canary Wharf currently have, a, have to meet Stage 3B as a minimum. From 2020, any development site in Greater London will be required to meet Stage 3B. Central London and Canary Wharf will need to meet Stage 4. Now that's all well and good. As a Londoner by birth and a regular visitor to the city, I have no issue with it being a bit cleaner. Contrary to popular opinion, I'm not old enough to remember the pea super smogs of years gone by, and I certainly don't hanker for their return. But Mr Khan and his green-at-all-cost cohorts seem to be overlooking several key points here. First of all, there is the likely financial impact. According to statistics from the BC Live League table, Greater London regularly accounts for between a third and a half of all new con construction contract awards let in the UK. Construction in London is already more expensive than anywhere else in the UK and just about anywhere else within Europe. 
If construction companies, plant hirers and demolition firms are required to have super clean machine and vehicle fleets merely to service clients in London, someone will have to foot the bill. That could mean that an office block earmarked for London is relocated to Birmingham or Manchester where it would be cheaper to build. But in the midst of Brexit negotiations, when just about any inward investment must surely come with a question mark, there is also a distinct possibility that that London office block might actually be built in Paris, Amsterdam or Frankfurt. And then of course there is the issue of employment. It's estimated that the UK construction industry employs somewhere in the region of a million people. With a large share of construction activity focused around the nation's capital, it's safe to assume that London is a home to, to a proportionate part of that total. If construction and demolition costs are hiked due to Mr Khan's latest green initiative, will the jobs of all those workers be safe? And that's to say nothing of the practical implications. We already have experienced equipment operators struggling to contend with AdBlue, engine regeneration, particulate filters and a whole host of other devices designed to limit their environmental impact. And that's before they've even started work in the morning. Depending who you ask, Mr Khan's predecessor Boris Johnson was either a charismatic, yet eccentric mayor, or a buffoon. But say what you like about Donald Trump's only rival in the ridiculous politician hair stakes, Boris Johnson's reign as Mayor of London was categorised by doing, or at least trying to do things. Some were a success. The London Olympics and the environment-driven Boris Bikes initiatives were, no were notable. Some were not, although the proposed airport in the Thames estuary on what critics labelled Boris Island remains a far more sensible option than an additional runway at Heathrow. Mr Khan, on the other hand, seems to delight in prevention. He acts the Westway Cycle Superhighway. He acts the admittedly questionable Garden Bridge. And now it seems he's intent on axing, or at least restricting, future construction demand. Unfortunately for those involved in construction and demolition, there are two very good reasons why Mr Khan might just get his way. First of all, he has written to the Environment Secretary, Michael Gove, who, in addition to being the very epitome of the term slimy politician, is the man that stabbed Boris Johnson in the back, thereby preventing his run at the role of Prime Minister. Gove loves the headline almost as much as Mr Khan, and will likely see the Mayor's initiative as another way to raise his profile and stoke his own ego. In addition, there is Mr Khan's strategic reference to the fact that there are 400 schools within the zone that will be enforced more rigorously should his scheme get the green light. A few, like me, might speak out against green initiatives, but it would take a brave man or woman to criticise a scheme that might safeguard the nation's capital, uh, the nation's children. That just wouldn't be politically correct. Thanks for listening. We can only hope that those responsible for accepting Mr Khan's proposals or kicking them to the curb are not cursed with groupthink, a psychological phenomenon in which a group of people reach a consensus of opinion merely to avoid conflict. Groupthink's possible impact on the UK demolition business is something we also addressed this week. All lies in chess, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That was The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel, which contains the immortal line, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. The reason I'm playing this now is that it neatly sums up something that's been nagging away in my brain for some time now. It's been eating away at me since the Brexit referendum, 
in which the role of social media in influencing the eventual outcome came under severe scrutiny. One of the issues highlighted at that time was that we each tend to seek out, consciously or subconsciously, like-minded people that share our beliefs and values. So rather than seeing both sides of the Brexit argument, many Facebook users merely saw views that mirrored and echoed their own. Birds of a feather flock together, as the old saying goes. But this is more than just an old saying. In fact, there is a psychological phenomenon known as groupthink that occurs within a group of people in which the desire for harmony or conformity in the group results in an irrational and dysfunctional decision-making outcome. Group members try to minimise conflict and reach consensus decision without critical evaluation of alternative viewpoints by actively suppressing dissenting viewpoints. Groupthink requires individuals to avoid controversial issues or alternative solutions and there is a loss of individual creativity, uniqueness and independent thinking. The dysfunctional group dynamics of the in-group produces an inflated certainty that the right decision has been made. In many ways this makes perfect sense. If we choose to spend all our time with people with opposing views, our lives will be filled with conflict and argument and personally I get enough of that from the people I agree with. Similarly, in business, nobody would ever get anything done if every meeting descended into anarchy. It's also for this reason that most established democracies have opposing parties to hopefully keep that in-group in check. Such a system exists and largely works in the governing of countries, but the same cannot be said of the governing of industries. Indeed, I can't think of a single industry in which there are two trade associations or bodies that check and balance each other. Oh sure, the British scaffolding sector has a couple of associations, but they are basically rival organisations and never the twain shall meet. If you're a scaffolder, you pays your money and you takes your choice. In the demolition business, there's no such choice. The National Federation of Demolition Contractors and indirectly its training arm, the National Demolition Training Group, holds sway. So what was all that groupthink stuff about, I hear you ask? The National Federation of Demolition Contractors is often criticised generally by those that are not members, as being an old boys club. Now I enjoyed several years working with and within the NFDC, and I don't necessarily agree with that, even though I totally understand the suggestion. However, there is a very real possibility of a groupthink mentality, of a false consensus agreed to avoid conflict, fallout or being ostracised and excluded by your peers. As I stated before, Groupthink requires individuals to avoid raising controversial issues or alternative solutions and there is a loss of individual creativity, uniqueness and independent thinking. Is there room for uniqueness and independent thinking within the upper echelons of the NFDC? Well that's not really for me to answer, I'll leave you to judge that for yourself. But before you think to yourself that it doesn't matter anyway because you're not a member of the NFDC, you might like to think again. Although the NFDC has only about a quarter of all UK demolition companies as its members, its influence stretches far further because of its training arm, the National Demolition and Training Group. Because it has the ear of the Construction Industry Training Board and, to a lesser degree, Build UK, the NDTG greatly influences the tr demolition training re regime, whether you're an NFDC member or not. It's worth bearing in mind that the N former NFDC president almost always goes on to become the chairman of the NDTG. It doesn't end there. Although there have been exceptions, a good many of the former NFDC presidents also go on to become the president of the Institute of Demolition Engineers, 
often surround themselves with the same team all over again. Is that groupthink in action? Oh, and if you're in the US or Europe and you think that this doesn't affect you, the NFDC is actively involved in both the European Demolition Association and the National Demolition Association, and there is an information sharing between all three. So in effect, the same small group of men, and yes, these are men, can create an in-group at a regional level within the NFDC, take that with them to national level within the NFDC, onto the NDTG and the IDE, and then conceivably export that mode of thought to Europe and the US. Is that a bad thing? If that mode of thought is totally, categorically and 100% focused on best practice, then no, absolutely not. More power to them, in fact. But what if it's not? Newton's third law states that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. While that was designed to explain physics theory, it's often true in everyday life. National politics swing left and right with each new election, each one a reaction to what went before. Rock and roll and punk were a reaction against what had gone before them. Flared trousers were replaced by skinny jeans, and the chances are skinny jeans will ultimately give way to a resurgence of flares. All of those, and these are just a few examples, demonstrates what happens when there is a freedom of thought, when there is ability to challenge current thinking, when individuals can choose for themselves. The NFDC, the NDTG, IDE, NDA and EDA all do what they do, and they do it very well. So did Frank Sinatra, but I'm still bloody glad that Elvis came along. Thanks for listening. And finally, given the popularity of our previous narrative story, Pies and Pilgrimage, in episode 30 of Demolition News Radio, we've been seeking an opportunity to do another, and by sheer accident and good fortune, we got that opportunity on Thursday this week. This is the Demolition Litmus Test. I have a new litmus test by which I judge the likely quality and professionalism of a demolition site and the company running it before I've even seen it. I'll admit, it's early days. I've only tested it out a handful of times, but to date it's been 100% accurate. The inspiration for this test came, slightly indirectly, from Her Majesty the Queen. There's an apocryphal story that the Queen thinks everywhere smells of fresh paint because teams of people rush around to make everything look spick and span before she visits. Now, I'm not comparing myself to the Queen. For one thing, I work for a living. My face has never appeared on a stamp, and my hats never match my outfit. But I've always had a nagging concern that I get invited only to see the best sites, sites that have been checked over with a fine-tooth comb in case I print something that makes the contractor look anything less than perfect. Of course, I've never had the red carpet rolled out for me at a demolition site, or anywhere else for that matter, but the sites I visit are always a bit tidier and a bit better organised than the ones I drive past on my way somewhere else. Which brings me to the core of my litmus test. Just recently, I've been given demolition companies less and less noticed on my request to visit one of their sites. Sometimes it's just a day or two. Earlier this week, it was less than 24 hours. I figure that any demolition company that's willing to accept a visit at such short notice has nothing to hide, that they're doing things right, regardless of the impending visit from a journalist. A journalist with a video camera and a drone. A journalist with a video camera, a drone and a global audience of the demolition firm's peers. My latest use of the litmus test came on Thursday this week. There's a crowded house song called Four Seasons in One Day, and it was written with a day like Thursday in mind. 
When I was loading my camera gear and PPE into the car, it was cold. Not winter cold, but cold enough to make me go back inside to pick up a jumper. Cold enough to remind me that my days would start, soon start with the scraping of ice from the car windscreen. By the time I'd made it to the motorway, the clouds were gathering. From a photographic point of view, a few clouds are nothing to worry about. If anything, clouds lend a certain texture to an autumn sky that looks flat and dull otherwise. The drone, however, is less of a fan of what clouds contain. By the time I reached Kent, my worst fears had been realised. The heavens opened just as I was pulling into a petrol station to refill the car. Despite parking under the petrol station's roof, I was soaked, a fierce wind sending the rain sideways under the canopy. But by this time, I was committed, and even if it meant the drone staying in the car, I was just a few miles from the site, and I had people to meet. The site was tucked away towards the end of an industrial site, and right away my new litmus test was proved correct, as the site was almost totally inconspicuous. The site hoarding was in place, as was the safety signage, but the road outside was clean. There was no plant and no demolition vehicles in sight, and even with the car window wound down, there was no noise or dust to announce the presence of demolition works in this otherwise tranquil setting. I, or rather we, I had my son and cameraman Fred with me, were greeted at the gate by the site manager. Relatively young, the site manager was silently checking that our PPE was present and correct as we were led onto the site and accompanied to the site office. The site office is another great clue to the professionalism of a demolition site. Some are like well-equipped offices with blinking laptops, office-style chairs and reams of carefully organised paperwork. Others are indistinguishable from the portable toilets alongside which they are often located. Dirty cups, discarded food wrappers and week-old newspapers still lying where they landed. This site, office thankfully, was one of the more professional kind. Sure, the desk had paperwork on it, but it was neatly arranged and methodical. This was a place of work, not a place of lounging and idle banter. The site was split down the middle. Approaching from the site office, the main contractor was hard at work on the left, while the demolition contractor was still beavering away on the right. The front elevation of the two-storey building was exposed, the handiwork of a Lugong excavator that was parked up at the far end of the site, while the internal strip-out work progressed. Another sign of a well-organised and choreographed site is the lack of shouting and chatter. On this site, the handful of workers went about their business, pausing occasionally to discuss the next plan of action before pressing on with the job in hand. As you would expect, all the personal pr protective equipment was in place, but this was warm PPE. This was hard hats and high-vis vests that had seen action. It had not been pulled fresh from its wrapping that morning for the visit of the Pratt with the camera. The arisings from the demolition works were segregated and organised impeccably. Rubble in one pile, timber in another, a tangled pile of metal was ready to be rehandled into a bin close by. The site manager was busy, very busy, communicating with the workers one minute, relocating equipment the next, accepting a delivery or redirecting a visitor to the main contractor's site office the minutes after that, and all the time maintaining a watchful eye on the pair of camera-wielding interlopers that had descended onto the site. The morning visit was merely a recce, a check to make sure that the site was suitable for photos to be taken later in the day, and it seemed like the demolition gods were smiling upon us. At nine o'clock in the morning, the site was hunkered beneath a grey leaden sky, a stiff breeze buffeted the tops of the trees, making drone flight seem at best unlikely and at worst a recipe for disaster. 
By the time we returned to take the real photos, the site, or at least half of it, was bathed in autumn sunshine. In fact, it was something of a relief to discover that my Miller groundbreaking sunglasses were tucked in the pocket of my high-vis jacket. Furthermore, the wind had not just subsided, it had disappeared entirely. Time to break out the drone. Demolition photography often requires a degree of planning and posing to ensure that the resulting shots make the maximum impact. Stray bits of rubble is removed from the foreground, an excavator or a boom arranged just so to make it even more photogenic. Demolition video is rather different. Good demolition video captures the action as it is. In fact, our best demolition footage and the best parts of demolition TV is produced when the demolition team ignores our presence and just gets on with their day job. And so, this company went back to work while our DJI Phantom made pass after pass overhead up and down the length of the site. You can judge for yourself the quality of the footage when it's broadcast on a demolition TV show at some point in the future. All in all, we were on site for a few hours. This was not a big site, it wasn't a landmark project, and it was not laid out to impress a passing journalist and to gather some column inches in the demolition magazine. In fact, although we will be featuring the contractor, and more importantly the site manager, in a future edition of Demolition Magazine, the chances are that this site will never make it onto the magazine's pages. The contractor, oh yes, the contractor was Kent Demolition, or if you're a Twitter user, at Team Kent Demo. And the site manager that had the works ticking along like clockwork. Yeah, I forgot to mention, the site manager was a young woman. Thanks for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this latest episode of Demolition Digest and that you'll consider subscribing to our almost daily podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening.